Alrighty then, let's just, uh, open our Bibles or our electronic device to Matthew chapter 6, please. Matthew chapter 6. We're studying through the Gospel of Matthew chapter by chapter and verse by verse. We're in that section, chapters 5 through 7, we call the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6. The topic, Jesus describes a person who wants to appear spiritual in order to receive the approval of other men as an actor playing a role behind a mask. The title of our message, Who Was That Masked Man Pleaser? Let's have a word of prayer. Thank you. God bless you, sister. You're going to travel with me. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our morning. I pray that it would be valuably spent, Lord, as we uh, expose our hearts to your word And as your spirit, Lord, reveals Jesus to us in that word so that we would leave this place more like him, more conformed to his image than when we came. If there are people here that don't know you, Lord, they've never been saved, I pray that they would receive you as their Lord and Savior, that they would understand they are sinners, that you have forgiven their sin on the cross, but that they must turn their heart towards you, repent of their sin and believe on you. And for those of us who are Christians, Lord, that we might uh, review our hearts and and evaluate our lives knowing there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. I have no idea if Jesus ever attended the theater, but it's clear he had some understanding of stage acting in the first century. In this set of verses, he uses the word hypocrites three times. It's from the Greek word that described actors. It means something like playing a role behind a mask. In the Greek theater, uh, the the actors would hold up these masks. You, you know the ones I'm talking about, the ones that have the big smiles on them or, or the big frowns because they would be in these outdoor uh, amphitheaters and they'd be so far from the audience that no one would be able to hear what they were saying about the amplification of the mask and they wouldn't recognize the various characters. And so they wore these tragic masks or these comic masks. And so an actor was someone who was behind the mask. Now, Jesus' repetition of the word hypocrites, it's not the only clue Jesus had the theater in mind. This is a very uh, deep illustration he's using. Because in verse one, let's read that together. He says, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your father in heaven. That phrase I emphasized, to be seen by them, or your Bible may say, to be noticed by them, it comes from the Greek stem that is used of spectators in an audience. And so Jesus was all over this illustration, talking about actors uh, and their audience. The people that the Jews thought were the most spiritual, the most righteous, were actors wearing masks performing for an audience of other men in order to get their applause and approval. They were, in a word that we would use today, phony. Men are not the proper audience to review and reward your righteousness. God is that audience. And so staying with the illustration, we could say that you have an audience of one and that is your Father in heaven. I'll organize my thoughts then around two points. Number one, take heed, you always prefer the audience of one, and number two, do all of your deeds to please the audience of one. Let's take a look at verse one and talk about this audience that we have with our Father. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them, 
Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Most of the competent Bible commentators point out that verse 1 is an introduction to this entire section. They say that the best translation of charitable deeds from the very best manuscripts we have available is the word, the single word, righteousness. Thus, the verse reads something like this, take heed that you do not do your righteousness before men to be seen of them, else you have no reward with your Father which is in heaven. The word righteousness, then, is a general term that describes behaviors that are inspired because you are now in a right relationship with God. Three of those behaviors are then described in these verses, in this order, giving, praying, and fasting. There are other behaviors that Jesus could have chosen, but he gives these uh, as his example. When Jesus makes his points about praying in this chapter, he goes into greater detail by giving us what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. Now, this morning, we're going to talk about giving, praying, and fasting. We're going to skip the Lord's Prayer and take it by itself next time because it's too important to gloss over it. Jesus warned about doing our deeds before men. Oz Guinness wrote and he said, most of us, whether we are aware of it or not, do things with an eye to the approval of some audience or other. The question is not whether we have an audience, but which audience we have. A life lived listening to the decisive call of God is a life lived before one audience that trumps all others, the audience of one. Paul the Apostle in Ephesians 6, verse 6, encouraged you to serve God. He said, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ. It's this same idea, only put a slightly different way. Guinness would go on to say, and I quote, we have moved from the inner directed world in which our calling as Christians acts as an inner compass to the other directed world of our modern society in which our contemporaries are our real guides. We see this in teenagers listening to their peers, women following the beguiling images of womanhood in magazines and designer fashions, politicians aping polls and slavishly following focus group findings, and pastors anxiously following the latest profiles of seekers. Instead of playing to a human audience, we ought to seek the reward of our Father in heaven, Jesus says. Now, why should we care about rewards? Well, one reason why is because Jesus cares a great deal about bestowing them. He mentioned them prominently in these verses and throughout the Gospel of Matthew and really throughout the New Testament, the idea of being rewarded for our work for the Lord is very, very prominent. The point is, if rewards matter to our Father and to Jesus, well, then they ought to matter to us. What matters to God should matter to us. It's become popular and it seems kind of super spiritual. Some Christians say, well, I don't really care about my rewards. You know, I'm I'm so humble that I don't care about my rewards. And all we're gonna do is throw them back at Jesus anyway. Well, you know what? Jesus wants to catch some rewards. I mean, he's excited about giving you something. You ever want to give something to somebody and they just won't take it and you want to just, you know, punch them in the face? Now, Jesus is not going to want to punch you in the face, but that's the idea. You, you, it, 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 a giver wants to give. And there's no greater giver than the Lord Jesus Christ and he's looking for people to receive what he has to give and that's you and I. 
And so I want to receive all the rewards I can, not, not so that I can stand head and shoulders above someone else in the kingdom of heaven or in, uh, in heaven itself, just so that I can have that moment with my Lord. A heightened sense of my future rewards will also help me look past men on earth to my real audience in heaven. It will keep me from becoming a man pleaser because I'm thinking about that day I see Jesus Christ. And so that moves us into this second phase here. Do all your deeds to please the audience of one. Jesus gets specific. As I mentioned, he uh, uh, presents three spiritual behaviors. In verse two, he says, when you do a charitable deed. In verse five, he says, when you pray. And then in verse 16, he says, when you fast. First thing to note is that he said when, not if. Uh, There's no question in his mind that these three behaviors are part of what it means to be a Christian. Nevertheless, these may be the least three practice behaviors among believers. Regarding giving, the statistics are always very drastic. The average is that a Christian in America gives around 2% of his or her income to the work of the Lord. That's the average Christian. When you figure in those who do actually tithe, who give 10% or even more, it means that most Christians in churches in America give almost nothing or nothing to the work of the Lord. Now, it's hard to give a statistical analysis of prayer, especially private prayer. No one knows how much praying you are really doing. Still, almost any believer will readily admit they don't pray as much as they ought to or they would like to. And so we kind of police ourselves on that one and say, well, yeah, we're a little bit deficient in the area of prayer. Fasting has fallen on hard times. A number of contemporary Christian Bible teachers even go so far as to say that fasting is no longer a behavior you should engage in, that it's for a long past time. And let's start from scratch. We've heard these things before if you've been in church any length of time and you've been exposed to this. So just put all of that out of your mind and just think, I'm a Christian And that means I have immediate access to God the Father because of my relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm in the presence of God. He is my audience of one. But I'm not an actor to his audience. I am a reactor to his awesomeness, reacting to his love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and acceptance. I react to that. When I hear about Jesus and what he's done for me and who he is and and I have an audience with the Father, I react to that forgiveness of sin for that cleansing that he's done in my life to, to be accepted in heaven and those kinds of things. And so reacting that is not acting reveals itself in things like giving and praying and fasting. It is the genuine response to what I know to be true about the grace and mercy of my Lord. Now, G. Campbell Morgan, good, solid Bible commentator, you'll find he's uh, one of those dead guys, and so you'll find his books in used bookstores, Christian bookstores and all. Uh, Just buy them, and if you don't like them, give them to me. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, good guy. In his commentary on Matthew, he suggested something interesting 
and I think it's insightful. He suggested that giving really kind of flows out of you having prayed about it, which is connected to your fasting to enhance your praying. In other words, he sees this as a sort of progression taken in reverse order. So I wanna take these behaviors in a reverse order, starting with fasting in verses 16, 17, and 18. Verse 16, moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces so they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. These guys actually must have been really good actors. Can you make yourself right now look like you're hungry? That's a, you know, every, every once in a while you watch a show on acting and, they, you know, and they'll say, show me this, you know, and, 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 they, and they show you a face that has some emotion. But I don't know that I've ever seen anybody give a, 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 off the aura that they're hungry. I would have to drool while looking at a hamburger or something. That's, I'd have to have a prop, you know, to say, oh, he's trying to appear hungry. Well, do you rub your tummy? I mean, well, these guys, they disfigured their faces, uh, and, and Jesus will say later, hey, you should comb your hair and wash up. So these guys would come out of their house like this, and people would somehow understand that they were fasting, that they you know, were without food. Good actors, which made them bad Christians. Now, Jesus made it clear fasting would continue when he said, when you fast. We know from the gospel accounts that Jesus fasted, and he expected his disciples to fast at some point. He was once asked by the disciples of John the Baptist, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, Jesus was saying, I'm the bridegroom, and once I'm in heaven, then I expect that my disciples will fast. His followers in the first century fasted. The Apostle Paul is a good example. He once said of himself, he was in fastings often. It's from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. Now, at the same time, I want to point out that fasting is nowhere in the New Testament prescribed as a duty. It's not something you have to do. It's something you're able to do. It's something you get to do if you so choose. Now, the hypocrites fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. They said it was because those were the days Moses ascended Mount Sinai on the two occasions that he met with God there. But let me ask you a question, those of you who are here in Hanford. What happens here in Hanford on Thursday afternoons and evenings? Farmer's market. Well, it just so happens that in ancient Israel, Monday and Thursday were the times of market and there would be the greatest crowds out in the streets on Mondays and Thursdays. And so these guys, they chose these days to be seen more by men fasting in order to have the greatest audience of men for their performance. And so you see how subtle this desire is to have an audience and to be applauded for your spirituality. Verse 17, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your father who's in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. The single issue addressed by Jesus here is your outward demeanor when you are fasting. Be inconspicuous, give no indication you're fasting, don't be an actor. 
No audience on earth, therefore, knows, only your audience of one. Jesus' words restored fasting to an activity, a secret activity, between you and your Father. And that's a good way of approaching fasting. It's an activity you and your Father participate in together so that you can have some quality time. Now, when we talk fasting, we're talking abstaining from food, but the bigger picture here is that we are foregoing something in life in order to spend time with the Lord. It might be food, but it might involve other things as well. I want to suggest to you that fasting is, and this may sound strange at first, but fasting is romantic. It's like when I first dated Pam and I literally gave up sleeping in order to be with her because I lived in San Bernardino and she lived in Santa Ana and I would get off work at 5 or 5.15 and I would shower and drive to Santa Ana and I would come back at 3 or 4 in the morning every night and sleep for about 20 minutes and then go to work. Now that worked for about three weeks uh, and then I was in the hospital suffering from exhaustion where I first experienced Valium. Man, let me tell you, I know why people get addicted. I don't think I've ever taken Valium since then, uh, nor Demerol. I don't recommend that either, but that's a whole other story for another time. But anyway, I literally gave up sleeping because I wanted to be with Pam when we were dating. And so that's the idea. Jesus would give up sleeping, and he wouldn't eat all night, many nights, in order to be with his Father in heaven. I know it doesn't sound spiritual, but fasting is like dating. You give up other activities to be with the one that you love. Now, don't think you're fasting when you're too busy to eat lunch. Do you ever do that? You ever try and fake yourself out and say, oh, man, I got so busy I didn't eat lunch. Hey, I fasted. I, uh, <laughs> hallelujah. I think we do a lot of things and then we assign a spiritual value to them. You know, hey, what happened to your lunch? I, I, I lost it, so hey, fasting day. You know, that kind, that's not the point. If I skip lunch but spend none of that time with the Lord, I, I can't consider that fasting because it's not the fasting that's important. It's that I did it so that I wouldn't be distracted in my relationship with God. It isn't what I give up It's what I gain by sacrificing, and what I gain is time with the Lord. Fasting always seems connected with prayer in the Bible. There are times of prayer without fasting, but you won't find times of fasting without prayer. Regarding prayer and fasting working together, W.H. Griffith Thomas, another guy whose books you'd be well to collect, he remarked, prayer may be said to be that by which we attach ourselves to God, Fasting is that by which we detach ourselves from the world. Working back up the verses, meet me at verse five. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. There were set times for daily prayers in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening. In the Old Testament, you see Daniel praying three times a day at those set times. In the New Testament book of Acts, Peter and John were told were going to the temple at the hour of prayer when they paused to heal the blind beggar. There was nothing wrong with having set times for prayer or for having prayer meetings. There was nothing wrong with offering prayers in public. 
What was and is wrong has to do with the motive to be seen by others. And so some of them are standing in the synagogue praying ostentatiously. Some of them, it says, on the street corner. What's that all about? Well, uh, because there were times of prayer, I think sometimes on purpose, some of these guys would leave their homes late and uh, they wouldn't be able to make it all the way to the temple or the synagogue. And so at the hour or the time of prayer, they would just, they would get on a corner. They would, this was, hey, this is my corner. And they would just start praying as loud as they could. And, and you would walk by them and you would think, wow, that guy is so spiritual that even though he couldn't get to church, he's praying anyway. And, and it, would, it would, you know, but they were only doing it because they had an audience or because all the good spots were taken in the synagogue. I mean, maybe you got to the synagogue and all the really good spots where people could notice you, you know, there's something left in the balcony and you thought, well, hey, nobody's gonna see me here. I'll just go outside and pray. And, and there was, so they, they had this kind of battle of the prayers, I guess, going on, you know, to see who could appear the most spiritual. Let's make a short list of ways we might draw attention to ourselves. I want to be careful. Not all of these uh, are always true because it has to do with motive. Some people can do some of these with the right motive, but I think you'll get the idea. We can pray, but our words are really a message intended for our fellow believers to hear rather than a conversation with God. Over the years, I've had plenty of opportunity at prayer meetings where people will start to pray, and what they're really doing is giving a teaching. And they say, you know, oh, Father, you know, they're in uh, Matthew chapter six where you told Gene to do this, you know, and, and, and they, they kind of give you a teaching. They're not really talking to God about men. They're talking to men about God. Now, we can totally change our manner of speaking when praying. We might suddenly get loud and start repeating some phrase, or we might adopt a formality we would never use in ordinary conversation. All of this, it happens in conservative churches, it happens in Pentecostal churches. You've seen guys get into the pulpit perhaps in a conservative church and all of a sudden they go to this. God! <laughs> With or without the gesture, but there's always God! And, and, you know, it's like, wow, you know, this is a holy moment because we're not talking to God, we're talking God, you know, and, and, and that kind of a thing. Then there's the opposite extreme. And again, if you have a right motive for doing that, I don't have a problem with that. Usually that's followed up with language that we don't use anymore. Old King James language. God, thou art holy. And, you know, shout and shant and all that kind of stuff. Look, you don't do that in normal life, do you, in your relationships? If you saw me this morning, I ran into some people coming to church this morning. No one said, Gene, good morning. <laughs> Sounds like Dory talking to whales. It's like whale speak. A lot of high church languages actually whale speak. I speak whale. Good morning. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got, and, and I know you think I'm making fun of it, but I am. Uh, <laughs> some Pentecostals, and again, God bless them, they love the Lord, but I remember a time I was in Japan, and we were with, there's a bunch of American pastors, and we were about to do a ministry, and, and they said, hey, let's pray. We're in a circle of prayer, and, and they, said, they asked me to pray, and I said, all right, let's bow our heads and, and let's pray. And as soon as I said, let's pray, it was on. There was one guy 
who just the whole time was going, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And it was always the same. It was always, another guy was loading up. He would go, hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. And he would just keep refreshing that, you know. And then another guy was praying in tongues really loud. And it was just, it was insanity. I couldn't pray. I literally couldn't pray. My prayer sounded like tongues because I couldn't get the words out. I was so distracted. Now, they may have been totally sincere. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. But these are ways that we draw attention to ourselves when we pray. We should just be natural and normal around people. Uh, you know, uh, that's why uh, one of my pet peeves, ugh, it's just with me. It's just me. But I've been to a lot of churches, even Calvary's, where before the service, they want to gather the really spiritual people together. You know, uh, you're out there saying, hey, how you doing? You know, I had, you know, caramelized onions last night, you know, and stuff. And uh, you're up here on, and they gather you and you're on the stage. Oh, they're praying, you know. So, but go behind a wall. You know, go in the green room. Get all that done in secret so that you're not, you know, coming across as spiritual. That doesn't mean that after service or during service you can't reach out and pray for somebody. I mean, so we have to be careful. It, has to, it goes to motive, does it not? It, the behavior isn't as important as the motive. And a lot of times our motives are just wrong. Now, uh, he says, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Go into your room is sometimes translated, enter into your closet. It's given rise to the concept of a special place or room where you can do your very best praying. There are even actual plans online you can discover for building a prayer closet. That's okay. Just remember this. Most of the people Jesus was talking to had one-room homes that didn't have closets. So he wasn't talking about the kind of living situation we have today. What kind of room was he talking about? Well, it's something even more profound. According to his scholar William Hendrickson, the Greek verb used was related to the nouns treasurer, treasury room, or storeroom. Such rooms were where precious objects were kept. The equivalent today might be a vault. And so a paraphrase of this might be, think about your prayers as if they were spoken in a vault that secures precious things. I submit to you that prayer is precious to God. There are indications even in the Bible that God stores our prayers. Three times in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, we're told that the prayers of the saints, which rise before God as incense, are collected in heaven. And in the Old Testament, we read in Psalm 56, verse 8, that God puts the tears of the saints into his bottle and he notes them in his book. And so God is keeping track of things you say to him. Our prayers are not stored because they are profound, they are stored because God is our Father. You parents and grandparents, do you not have tons of memorabilia from your children and grandchildren? And by itself, I dare say it is junk. It's not artistic in value. It just clutters up your house, but it's precious to you. Those little figures with round heads and square bodies and stick arms, it's fantastic stuff. Uh, it puts a very different slant on prayer, does it not? That's how God receives our prayers. They are precious to him and he stores them. Now, if you've spent all this quality time with God, fasting and praying, you can't help but respond by doing what? By giving. 
And so we jump up to verse two. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. This is probably where we get the expression, really, don't blow your own horn. It comes from this idea. And apparently, as I read and researched this, apparently they actually... Uh, did announce their charitable deeds by sounding a trumpet and gathering a crowd. Gene is giving his tithe. You know, that kind of, thank you. And, and this had become a custom. Don't think that churches don't do stuff like this today. It may not be trumpets, but there are a lot of ways that churches encourage giving by giving you some accolades, and it's just wrong. Now, those who give in such a way that they receive recognition from men are acting spiritual when, in fact, the motive is carnal. They're giving in order to receive rather than giving in order to give. When you give to receive, that's not giving. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly." I don't know why, but I've always been stuck on that phrase, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Is one of your hands over here writing a check that you don't know about? <laughs> hey, Gene, what's, is everything all right? Yeah, why? Oh, you're writing a check over there. Hey, stop that. You know, I mean, it's, it sounds crazy, but listen, I came across something. This is a real rare neurological condition. It's called alien hand syndrome. Check me out on this. This is real. AHS. It is an unusual neurological disorder in which one of the sufferer's hands seems to have a mind of its own. AHS is best documented in cases where a person has had the two hemispheres of their brain surgically separated, a procedure that is still sometimes used to relieve the symptoms of extreme cases of epilepsy. Alien hand sufferers can feel normal sensation in the hand, but he believes that the hand, while still being a part of the body, behaves in a manner totally distinct from normal behavior. They feel that they have no control over the movements of the alien hand, but that instead the hand has the capability of acting by itself. And that's the idea. We are to give as if the money in our hand was being controlled by someone else. And this, in this case being controlled by the Lord. And so the idea of my right hand not knowing my left is doing is that I've given control of it to Jesus to do what he wants with it. Now, how does the Lord get control of my giving? Well, the Lord takes control of my giving, we learn here, in secret. In other words, when I'm alone with the Lord, perhaps fasting and praying, he and I will determine in secret, in that intimate time, the scope of my giving as well as all the other parts of my life. I emerge from my time with Jesus having given him control. Isn't that what we do when we pray? Isn't that the goal? Is to go into a secret place with the Lord and to say, Lord, you gave all for me. I give you myself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you, which is my reasonable service. And the Lord says, I'll take it. Now go and let me show you how to live. It's hard to believe that anyone could emerge from a secret meeting with the Lord, having given him control over their giving, and then give almost nothing or nothing to him from their finances. I would have to submit to you that there's a problem with their prayer life. 
they're, they're not really hearing from the Lord. Why? Because if I'm really meeting with Jesus Christ, I'm gonna give more and more because I see that he gave everything for me. He became impoverished so I might have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Giving is one of those behaviors that it allows us to be brutally honest with ourselves because it is quantifiable. I know exactly how much I give or don't give. Every April when you're filling out your taxes and you get to the charitable giving, there's a number that goes in there and it's anywhere from zero up. And, and so, you know, we can make all the excuses we want um, and I'm not saying everybody has to give 10%. You know, we don't teach that here. But the idea is some Christians go through their entire Christian career, you might say, and never, ever give any money to the work of the Lord. I don't understand that. It's impossible in one sense to understand who Jesus is and not give him control of our finances. The verse ends, and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. This word openly does not occur in the best manuscripts we have. The sentence simply reads, and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you. Don't you want to delight the heart of your savior when you see him face to face? Of course you do. Fasting, praying, giving, they're not so much religious activities as they are a response to God's love for you. As I said, you're not an actor, you're a reactor. God loved you so much that Jesus came and died for you. You'd be therefore inspired to sacrifice more and more of your time to spend talking with him and then emerge from that wanting to give what God has given you so that this good news will spread out to others. The Jews, illustra- uh, the Jews Jesus addressed were familiar with his illustration of the hypocrite. We might update it for ourselves by discussing role playing. We might have used the example of role-playing. There are lots of different ways we role-play. I've done it at chaplain training seminars where you rehearse a role in a simulation in order to apply the training you've been taught. And so they teach you how to do a death notification or how to do something, and then they say, okay, now we're gonna play that out. You're the chaplain, you're the parent, you're this, you're that, and they go through that simulation. Perhaps the most popular role-playing that we're aware of today is in games, like online games, where you assume the role of a certain character, and you become that character for a time. Live-action role-playing is called LARPing, by the way. I don't know if you knew that. I don't know if you benefit from having known that, but uh, live-action role-play, LARPing. The idea here is that following the Lord is not live-action role-playing. It is loving. It's not LARPing, it's loving, with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. Here's what I think sometimes happens to us, myself included. Because of the way we intensely study the Bible, and we need to, and we want to, and we always will, we're a people that we, we, we think of it in a purely intellectual, scholarly kind of an approach. Well, we throw in words like romance and love and all of that, but we're really studying God's word. And, and when we're, you know, we think of it like we're in class and we, we take notes, and that's fine too, nothing wrong with any of this, and we wanna have points. Don't we wanna have points? You gotta have points, two points, three points, 10 points how, about how I give or how I pray or, or, or you know, how I fast. And, and if I'm not careful, I can look at those things and check them off and think, yeah, I'm doing all of those things, I'm LARPing. I'm doing a live action role play when my heart is far from the Lord. 
I know that's possible because Jesus had words with the church at Ephesus, which was a great church doing all kinds of things that you could check off of your list. Standing against false teaching, ministering in their community, all that. And Jesus says, okay, that's all great, but I have one very serious thing against you. You have left your first love. It's all LARPing, it's all role play, and there's no genuineness to it. And so all I can do is look into my own heart, my own life. I can't do that for you. No Christian can. Don't let anybody do that. But we need to spend time with the Lord and realize that, hey, this is a romantic relationship. I know that we always say, well, love is, love is a verb, it's commanded, and so, you know, you have to love. Well, yeah, but you also get to love, and Jesus, you know, he put our relationship with him in the context of, of a bride and a bridegroom. If we go around, let me put it this way, a lot of marriages break up because there's too much live-action role-playing going on and not enough loving. Now, let me offend you one last time this morning. <laughs> If you want to continue doing this, I think it's a great idea. Date night. Say, date night is fantastic. Unless you analyze it from a distance and you think, six days a week, I'm going to be a jerk. <laughs> and for a couple of hours on Friday night or Saturday night, while I'm quietly watching a movie next to my wife saying nothing, a movie that I want to see, by the way, <laughs> I'm having date night. You know, that, that's not gonna work over time. I think sometimes we approach Jesus Christ as if we go to church and we have, a, we have date night with the Lord. And Lord, I dated you this way. And I, I, we had an extra date on Wednesday, so look how spiritual I am. <laughs> kind of a spontaneous date. They were, hey, honey, there's nothing else to do. Let's go to church, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, all of that's fine, but we need to get back into the understanding of love. Love that is not just commanded, but love that's demanded. Let's pray.